Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. While riding out alone about my business, I could not but smile out to God in praises. An assurance of victory, because God would, by things that are not, bring to naught things that are. Oliver Cromwell Archduke Leopold was beginning a long career which would involve a governorship of the Spanish Netherlands, but at this stage all he could do was withdraw further south. After losing the Second Battle of Breitenfeld in October 1642 to Leonard Torstensson, the Swedish commander in the Holy Roman Empire, the Swedes appeared poised to threaten the empire's very existence, as Gustavus had done 11 years before. Unlike Gustavus though, Torstensson could rely on the full military support of France, who had been at war with Spain since 1635 and the Holy Roman Empire since 1636. At this stage, French focus centred on the Spanish Netherlands and in aiding the rebels of Catalonia, whose rebellion we covered in the last episode. By 1642 the French occupation of Catalonia in the northeast of Spain was almost total and Philip IV himself had even marched out at the head of an army that year to Barcelona, its capital, in an attempt to rally the populace within the city to the side of their king. Humiliatingly for Philip though, his attack on Barcelona in that summer of 1642 was a miserable failure, when French troops reinforced Aragon as a whole, and his first minister, Olivares, was made the scapegoat for it. Richelieu was able to bear witness to this final success of his policy in Spain, and surely believed that the fall of the Habsburgs was due in merely a matter of time. But he died that year, on the 2nd of December. The nature 
of French court politics threatened an immediate change in French foreign policy once Richelieu was replaced, since even before his death, plots had been concocted involving such figures as the king's cousin and his wife to destabilise and redirect French foreign policy. But Richelieu had thought ahead. Calling Richelieu a thorn in the side of the Habsburgs is an understatement. From 1623 to 1634, no other figure had sought to do more to undermine the Habsburg victory in Europe than him. Whether at peace, or after 1635, at war, his determination to side with Protestant powers against the Habsburgs saved both Swedish and Dutch fortunes, as well as ensuring that the three powers combined would stand tall together. At every step, behind every negotiation undertaken by France, Richelieu went to great lengths to ensure that the Habsburgs were slighted. Meeting his mirror image in Axel Oxenstierna, Sweden's Chancellor, Richelieu was able to channel his anti-Habsburg policy through Sweden once that state entered the conflict in 1630. Before then, Richelieu had been a strong advocate for the supporting of any Habsburg enemy, be it Dutch, English or Danish, and his sponsoring of mercenaries like Ernst of Mansfield, remember him, enabled Richelieu to always feel like his foreign policy had the changing balance of power in mind. He wasn't willing to let what he had made fall apart once he died either. He had Cardinal Jules Mazarin, a student of his and a keen advocate of Richelieu's style of foreign policy making, established to succeed him. Geoffrey Parker in his book, The Thirty Years' War, notes on the making of Mazarin's character. Quote, Although born as a subject of Philip IV and educated partly in Spain, Mazarin's training as a diplomat under first Pope Urban VIII and then Richelieu made him an esteemed enemy of Habsburg power. His overriding aim was to weaken, and if possible divide, the Austrian and Spanish branches of the Habsburg family, and in this he was ultimately successful. But in 1643, newly installed, he had to be cautious. He could not ignore the risk that eternalising the costly war might provoke a revolution that would topple the monarchy, as seemed to have happened across the Channel, in the states ruled by Charles I and his French queen, Henrietta Maria. The English Civil War, which broke out in August 1642, was a fearsome warning. It encouraged prudence among princes. End quote. Europe was indeed very aware of what was going on in the British Isles. In particular, it was the Dutch Republic, whose path crossed with that of the troubled British Isles most notably, as we'll examine later. The Dutch were under the de facto rule of its stadtholder, Frederick Henry, Prince of Orange, and Henry could justifiably claim that he had effectively ended the threat to his state's existence by 1642, owing to Spain's terminal preoccupation with the French. That said though, Frederick hadn't actually won any military battles since his successful siege of Breda five years earlier, and the loudly critical States General, where reps of the United Provinces sat and served as the Republic's unelected government, began to make light of this. There were additional problems between the relationship that existed with Frederick Henry and the States General. Though he was meant to be merely a protector, or military figurehead as his predecessors had effectively been, while also exerting a level of influence as the Netherlands' practical dynasty, his effective juggling of Dutch domestic politics had enabled him to pretty much rule the place. By pitting the major parties of the Dutch Republic against one another, most notably in Holland, Frederick was able to control Dutch policy but his control could only work as long as no party was strong enough to oppose him. 
The one thing that the Dutch parties could agree on in 1640, though, was that, considering the reduced state of danger the Republic was in, and the position Spain was in also, the war should come to an end, and the pressure placed on the Republic in terms of taxes, human levies, etc., should be ended. Frederick couldn't very well claim to protect the Republic if it was at peace, and the major premise of his rule was based on the idea that the war presented a crisis to the Republic that only the Stadtholder could deal with. Kind of like the Roman idea of appointing a dictator. What if the dictator lights his position and doesn't want the threat to Rome to end? What if the immediate threat to Rome has passed, but he still doesn't want to relinquish power, so he invents a new one, or exaggerates the old one? Frederick Henry was faced with this dilemma in 1640. Spanish agents had been sending peace feelers in desperation to the Estates General once Olivares' grand plans the year before went up in smoke. But Frederick also felt pledged to remain at war with Spain so long as his treaty with the French existed. For the moment, the idea of abandoning France was anathema to Frederick Henry, especially when such a war enabled him to continue in his rule. Thus, he effectively blocked the peace feelers. He had members of the States General bribed to intercept and hand over any Madrid Post documentation regarding a peace treaty to France, a move which Richelieu greatly appreciated. When Dutch statesmen, tired of war, noted the huge spending taking place on the Dutch military, considering the lack of real military progress in 1641-1642, to agitation for cutbacks continued. The States General were able to overrule Frederick in early 1642, and managed to cut their army back from 70,000 to 60,000. Hardly a great difference, but it was a symbolic victory that Frederick Henry was not able to prevent. Where the wedge was really driven, though, was in the question of foreign policy. Frederick Henry, having approached the idea of closer ties with England, organised a marriage between his son, William, to Mary, the daughter of Charles I of England. Now this would have been grand had the English Civil War not broken out in autumn 1642. Now the family ties Frederick had sought to cultivate were strained against the States General's naturally Calvinist and Republican tendencies to support the Parliamentarians, or Roundheads. David Milland, in his book, Europe at War, 1600-1650, notes on the events. Quote, King Charles had swallowed his pride over the Battle of the Downs in his anxiety to find allies against his parliament. Podcast footnote. The Battle of the Downs was a major naval confrontation between Spain and the Dutch that we covered in the last episode, in which the grand plans of Olivares outlined a Spanish sailing up towards the Dutch coastline and engaging in a major battle there. The reason why it created tension in England was because once the Dutch defeated the Spanish in the initial engagement, they had to violate the neutrality of English territorial waters in order to pursue the Spanish and defeat them in the Channel. This was the Battle of the Downs, and had Charles not been so preoccupied, he may have made something out of it in 1639. End podcast footnote. And when the Civil War broke out, Mary and her mother Henrietta Maria set up court in The Hague. When Frederick Henry tried to mobilise military support for the royalist cause, the regent class, already suspicious of his purposes in seeking out a royal marriage for his son, reasserted its uncompromising Calvinist and Republican nature, and maintained that if any help were to be given, it should go to the English Parliament. The dispute was a bitter one, and an official declaration of neutrality by the Estates General merely papered over the cracks. End quote. 
History, from the English perspective, normally is presented as the English monarchy looking curiously over the affairs of the continent and trying to discern the best deal for themselves and their preferred balance of power. In the case of the English Civil War, though, it was the Europeans witnessing the English Civil War in a state that was among the most centralised and prosperous, not to mention largely free from the worst excesses of the Thirty Years' War who were positively shocked to see such a dramatic transformation of the island nation. The war would set every corner of the British Isles against one another, and resulted in some of the worst atrocities that region has ever experienced. It would have absolutely horrified the old monarchical order of Europe, and would surely have contributed to the general European experience so far gained. That war was apparently never-ending, and went on everywhere. Britain has been notably absent from our Thirty Years' War narrative, despite its brief cameos, which is a nice change, I believe, considering its monopoly on events later on in the centuries. Certainly, while the war raged across the Isles for the better part of a decade, it ensured that no real British chestnuts would be roasted on the Westphalia fire in 1648. Up to now, you may be under the impression that the Triple Alliance, as I call it, of Sweden, France and the Dutch, faced virtually no internal problems of their own. The Dutch, as we have seen, struggled to reconcile the Republican apparatus with its famed family, but the French and Swedes had equally troublesome problems, all of which revolved around the question, the urgent need, to know when the war would end. The French problems ran almost as deep as the Spanish. Cardinal Richelieu, having driven the French foreign policy for the past two decades, was now dead, replaced by his successor in policy, Cardinal Mazarin. It was a small mercy for France's consistency that Mazarin had been in place, because Anne of Austria, eldest daughter of Philip III of Spain, was in fact Louis XIII's better half. This meant that, had she wanted to, Anne could have been a strong influence in the French court and a major player in the anti-war party that frequently plotted against Richelieu. There was also the fear that if the death of Richelieu was followed by his sovereign Louis and the planned successor, Louis XIV, yes, that Louis XIV, remained too young to rule in his own right, then Anne of Austria would be well placed to handle the regency government and redirect French foreign policy towards peace, just as it seemed the Habsburgs were nearing collapse. This certainly was a hope latched onto by the failing Olivares in late 1642, but it was a vain hope. Anne of Austria, though certainly more disposed towards peace than her husband was, was in fact on very good terms with Mazarin, and was inclined to listen to his counsel and heed his advice, even if that meant continuing the war with his brother's kingdom. Even if that meant continuing the war with her brother's kingdom. On May the 14th, 1643, Louis XIII did in fact die from suspected problems arising from intestinal tuberculosis. Such news shook Mazarin, since he now had to rely purely on his good relationship with the Queen in order to advance his policy. Louis XIV, now barely out of infancy, would become one of Europe's most important, influential, and powerful 17th and perhaps even 18th century monarchs, and certainly France's most famous. For now though, there was no indication that this child was going to take France to the heights of success. The continuation of France's policy depended on Mazarin's position, which, mercifully for the Swedes and Dutch, was ensured secure by Anne. 
Much has been written by historians regarding the character of Mazarin. Existing awkwardly between the two French giants of Richelieu and Louis XIV, one may be tempted to forget his name. As it seems history has done, since I had no idea he existed until researching this special. Historians had tended to view him as the cynical war-maker, content to ratchet up France's price for peace as the Habsburgs became weaker. But following World War II, a renewed focus on presenting Mazarin as a pacifist figure began to take root. Some historians even sought to present him as the Prince of Peace, considering his presence for both Westphalia and the Pyrenees in 1648 and 59, respectively. But he of course was more than that. Mazarin would guide Richelieu's inherited policy and mutate it into something Richelieu could be proud of, but more importantly, that the young king Louis XIV could use. Our excellent new source, entitled Peacemaking in Early Modern Europe by Derek Croxton, provides an interesting analysis of the man who would direct French policy for the next two decades. Quote, the most powerful man in France after the death of Richelieu in 1642 was Cardinal Jules Mazarin. His name sounds French enough, but in fact he was born in 1602 with the name of Julio Mazzarini, a subject of the King of Spain. Mazarin's foreignness has covered interpretations of him ever since. To his contemporaries, it meant that he was a devious Italian in the mould of Machiavelli. To recent historians, it means that he was a holdover who still believed in the unity of Christendom and who restored peace to a war-torn Europe. End quote. Mazarin managed to gain an effective grasp on France's foreign policy, and he would spend longer negotiating peace than organising war, but that didn't stop the French people from agitating at home. Richelieu had ensured that France adopted the position as paymaster of its European allies, despite the fact that financial pressure was tearing France apart. David Milland notes of the French Troubles. Quote, Initially, the government tried to finance its alliances and its own minor engagements abroad by creating more offices for sale within the administration. But before long, the full burden of warfare was experienced. In 1636, it had been found necessary to borrow on an overwhelming scale. In order to finance the loans which France used to wage war between 1630 and 1648, taxation was increased threefold, the most remarkable rate of increase in tax in the history of the Anshan regime. As taxes mounted, so did the arrears in payment, and troops had to be used more widely than in the past to assist the collectors to confiscate goods in lieu of payment. This led to a series of revolts in many regions of France, particularly, but not exclusively, throughout the South and West throughout most of the war years. End quote. Though they were perhaps more vocal about it, the French problems were not much different from that experienced by Philip IV Spain. The immediate problems of French finance were curable if France managed to turn the war off and repay its debts. But Richelieu, and thereafter Mazarin, knew that this wasn't a real option because by late 1642, the possibility of France abandoning its Swedish and Dutch allies wasn't even considered by Mazarin. Though this certainly troubled him, and had resulted in many revolts against the central authority, Mazarin was able to believe that the end goal was worth it. He had been persuaded of this by Richelieu, and Mazarin was thus able to persuade Anne. The French people didn't seem to harbour any misgivings about revolting when the government was in its most peril. 
1636, when France was assailed from all sides, a huge revolt was taking place in the major cities of Amiens and Rennes. While a gigantic peasant revolt, involving some 60,000 individuals, raged throughout the heart of the country. Richelieu had not panicked under these circumstances, and he had also held back from using the kind of ruthlessness that created all other peasant revolts in the HRE. In other words, slaughtered them all. Richelieu correctly believed that without a leader, the revolts would fizzle out. But even so, 1636 would surely have seemed like France's last gasp to anyone on the outside. Once the hated tax collectors had been killed, the peasants and their supporters mostly ran out of steam. While by the winter of 1636, Richelieu was able to use the army, again, not to simply destroy the peasants, but to coax them into dispersing. Richelieu was in fact determined to replace the old method of tax collection with one of his own. So the death of numerous independent tax collectors, morbid as it may sound, was not of a primary concern to him. The new tax system basically went like this. Tax collectors would be employed directly by the Royal Council, and would thus answer directly to the King and Richelieu. These new taxmen would have the power vested in them by Richelieu to raise their own forces to ensure taxes were collected, which meant the Richelieu didn't have to constantly watch them and ensure their safety. It wasn't until 1642 that this new service was effectively ready to assume the responsibilities of the old. But one of the major issues that had made the old tax system so ineffective in the first place was that there were simply too many tax collectors. The reason for this large amount of tax collectors was due to the government's policy of selling offices of the French administration to whoever would buy them. This swollen tax service, whose individual agents competed for the small monies available, and then found that the hard-pressed citizenry didn't have the funds anyway, didn't work because the agents thus became disillusioned with the whole system, and it then began to break down. Richelieu's policy for controlling the leaking of money out of the French system was thus bold, because it involved pretty much creating a new tax service. But it was a response to the problems that his own original policy had created. As late as 1642, Richelieu had had to put to death as many as 5,000 peasants a year as the revolts continued. And that was him restraining himself. The toll on the French countryside was enormous, and Mazarin recognised that Richelieu's tactics, though they were light, in comparison with how other European rulers dealt with their peasantry, were still too heavy-handed to properly work. Mazarin had also taken great notice of the warnings that emanated out of England, where the emergence of its bloody civil war in August 1642 had seriously shaken his confidence and increased his fears of the peasantry. Mazarin thus had to find a balance between appeasement of the citizenry and confident policy, and it was difficult to do that when you had just begun your term in office. Mazarin was aided, though, by the serious upturn in fortunes in 1643. Most notably, the Battle of Rocroy on the 19th of May, just five days after the death of Louis XIII. This battle reinvigorated Mazarin and enabled him to use this newfound confidence to stay the course and pursue the war against the Habsburgs, even while the latter half of 1643 was to prove trickier. And we'll soon see why. The Battle of Rocroi itself is often viewed as the end of the Spanish military supremacy and the beginning of French predominance. But it's obviously not that simple to just emphatically state that before this battle Spain was the man, after the battle not so much. What is notable is that French forces were able to defeat Spain's brightest and best, 
These same Spanish forces had endured decades of warfare, and the experience had moulded them into a savage, professional force unmatched in Europe. The Spanish experience had withstood Swedish charge after charge in Nordlingen, and saved the two Ferdinands' campaign there. However, Rockroy was almost ten years later. Much had changed since then. The Dutch, Swedes, and now the French, all understood the methods of fighting a battle. Military tacticians understood the latest theories on how to combat the Spanish Turkio formations, just as new ideas were emerging in the Spanish camp as to how Spain should co-opt foreign elements into its military strategy. Spanish Turkios were not invincible, they had been defeated before, but Rocroy was important because it demonstrated that French force was now on par with Spanish. French forces, under the vibrant young direction of Louis II, Prince of Condé, had proven that their victory had not been a flash in the pan or a result of singular brilliance. France won at Rocroy because it was simply better, a claim Spanish arms could no longer universally make. Much like the decline of the Roman military, when it got to the point that everyone was equal and Rome was not guaranteed success simply because it was Rome, Philip IV could no longer guarantee that just because experienced, hardened Spanish Turkios reached a certain spot to do battle with the enemy, that victory would be his. Marching overland, the Spanish army that would fight the French at Rocroy moved to secure Franche Comte and hopefully relieve Catalonia, where the French were still holed up. The decision had been made in Madrid to conduct a fresh drive against France, similar to that seen in 1635, while France was suffering from the recent departure of its king. The new governor of the Spanish Netherlands, Francisco de Milo, who had taken over following the death of the Infant, was able to spare 15,000 troops, while Ferdinand supplied him with a further 10,000, and de Milo thus had enough men for a campaign. They only barely reached the borders of that territory, though, before making the decision to lay siege to Rocroy, a small township literally across the border from where Milo had just come from, and in the way of a key valley he planned on marching through. A narrow gorge that led to the town had not been blocked by de Milo, and Louis II, Prince of Condé, moved quickly to relieve the town and engage de Milo in battle before the rumoured 6,000 Spanish reinforcements arrived. Condé appeared at the top of a ridge overlooking the town of Rocroy that Demilo was besieging, and before long the two armies were lined up. Demilo, with two lines of Turkios, cavalry on both of the wings, and a thin line of artillery in the centre, looked like a mirror image of practically every Spanish tactic ever seen. Condé lined up his forces similarly, but without the Turkios. When the battle began at dawn, it initially seemed like business as usual for the Spanish, who were able to beat back attacks on their infantry and the cavalry on their right wing. However, it was on the Spanish left cavalry wing that the real decisive action took place. However, it was the French cavalry efforts on their own left wing that the real decisive action took place. Once John de Gassion, who commanded cavalry during Gustavus Adolphus's victorious Breitenfeld campaign, matched up with his Spanish counterpart, the Spanish took flight and left the right flank exposed. Condé, who would later acknowledge gratefully the part played by Gassion, now cooperated with him to envision a grand encirclement of the Spanish army. What resulted was catastrophic. The Spanish infantry were hit on the right by Gassion's cavalry and attempted to turn to answer the challenge, but what Gassion really wanted 
was the cavalry on the Spanish left flank to help, and thus fall into a trap as the French cavalry opposite them pursued. When that cavalry engagement was successful for the French, the remaining French horses swept into the reserve of the Spanish line and destroyed its reserve cavalry, captured its cannons and almost killed de Milo. Eventually all that remained were the Turkios, not just Turkios, but purely Castilian Turkios, the best of the best, as the Walloon and Flemish contingents had fled away already. Some 8,000 Spanish then stretched out the duration of the battle for another 6 hours as Condé failed to break them. By the end of the battle, under pressure to end the day's success, Condé ordered that the entire cannon reserve of the French force be brought up, including those just captured from the Spanish. This had the desired result, and after an hour of pummeling, Condé was able to negotiate the surrender of the remainder of the Spanish forces. Total Spanish losses were as high as 18,000 from an original force of 25,000, while Condé lost only 4,000 men. What really mattered though was the fact that Condé, at 21 years old, had dramatically outmaneuvered and bettered his Spanish opponent, to the point that he was able to simply pound lumps out of them with their own cannon by the end of the battle. It said a lot about Spanish tactics, and it also didn't bode well for future Spanish fortunes, considering the very pressed nature of their state, and the fact that Demilo hadn't been meant to engage French forces so early in the first place. His objectives had originally been Catalonia and the relieving of the Spanish garrisons in Franche Comte. David Milland notes an interesting fact about Rocroy, and also alludes to the fact that French affairs at home could have made the result very different. Quote, of the troops who fought at Rocroy, only Condé and his most senior officers knew that Louis XIII was dead, and that the whole direction of French foreign policy might be altered by his widow who, with two sons under age, proclaimed herself regent. The situation resembled that of 1610, after the death of Henry IV. Anne of Austria, as sister of Philip IV, of the Cardinal Infant, and of the Empress, had always maintained a secret, indeed treasonous correspondence with Madrid and Brussels, and her first act, as Richelieu had always feared, was to recall from exile those who had conspired against the Cardinal and opposed his war with Spain. End quote. Anne could have ignored Mazarin and appointed one of these former exiles at the helm of France, thereby dramatically altering its position in the Thirty Years' War. Her decision to confirm her late husband's appointment of Mazarin did propagate numerous rumours regarding their relationship, some even going as far to say that the two had a secret marriage, while others simply suggesting that, in her search for statesmen who could effectively lead France, Anne upheld that Mazarin was still the right man for the job. This confirming of Mazarin was a further source of bad news for Spanish agents, who reported back to Madrid that with French policy back on track, French forces bearing down in Catalonia and the Spanish Netherlands, and with Spanish military supremacy in doubt, the future likelihood of success was at best uncertain. So Philip IV of Spain took the time to dismiss the by now insane with grief Olivares from his post in the spring of 1643, no doubt to serve as a scapegoat for all that had befallen Spain since whose rule of the government began. The Spanish were battling the French in Catalonia, in Piedmont, along the Rhine, and in the Spanish Netherlands, while they were also contending with the Dutch in that region. The Swedes, meanwhile, had begun something special by brokering a peace with Brandenburg, 
whose elector Frederick William appeared in many ways more like a child of the late Frederick V's Palatine family, still in exile, than that of his father who had so frequently swapped sides. As a matter of fact, Frederick William had for a time been educated in The Hague alongside those Palatine children, and as a Calvinist himself was inclined to question even further his father's policies, and in particular his tendency to look to Saxony for advice. Frederick William ensured, by spurning the Diet at Regensburg, that Ferdinand III had tabled from September 1640 to October 1641, that he'd become the de facto leader of dissatisfied German princes in the Holy Roman Empire. Frederick's brazen act of firing his father's appointed reps, then sending his own to very publicly denounce the Peace of Prague in the Diet, looked nothing like his father's tone. And Frederick's realistic assessment of events thereafter, which led him to see peace with the Swedes, contributed towards the idea among some princes that the best deal could be had outside of the Emperor's diplomatic authority. But it was what the peace brought to Sweden that was most important. Opposition to the war certainly existed, and we have seen that when the war went bad, Sweden's Chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna, had to shore up support by all means necessary. Yet Axox still faced the similar problems of all European states when it came to the issue of finances. Sweden had essentially lived on French money for the past decade, even while the financial state of Sweden became insufferable for many average citizens. The need to end the war, to recover from the war that Sweden had really been making up as it went along, was deeply felt, even by Axox's brother, who sent him countless dreary letters reporting on the status of the country. He noted in one example, The common man wishes himself dead. We may indeed say that we have conquered our lands from others, and to that end ruined our own. While the branches expand, the tree withers at the roots. The knock-on effect of removing so many Swedish men from various regions to serve in the military, the conscription law which amounted to a death sentence, or at the very least displacement for thousands of Swedish men, was becoming impossible to support. Though certainly Axox believed his country was winning the war, the war itself was beating Sweden and draining the state of everything it had. Reasons to be positive existed in foreign affairs, since with their rear secure following the Brandenburg peace, and with Torstensen bringing a new force of 7,000 Swedes with him as the new nucleus of his army, as well as an increased French subsidy and the desperate decision to sell off Swedish crown land, Torstensen was well placed to achieve the... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Kind of victories we covered in the last episode. And this culminated in the Second Battle of Breitenfeld in October 1642. From there, as we saw, he moved to capture Leipzig and occupy vast portions of Saxony. And in early 1643, he was campaigning around Silesia when he was contacted by Axe Ox and informed of a new development. The decision had been made by the Swedish Council to launch a preemptive attack against Denmark, and Torstensson was to be the one charged with leading it. King Christian IV of Denmark had a choice to make. After warring against the Habsburgs unsuccessfully in the period of 1625-29, to he had sat back and watched as his kingdom became usurped in the Baltic by the kingdom it had once called a vassal, Sweden. It must have been a very bitter experience for Christian, and one can imagine him explaining to his friends around the bar, Christian's entourage and Christian himself were in fact very heavy drinkers, that if they had only won that battle like Gustavus did, or if the French had only supported him like they supported Gustavus, or if he had only been as lucky as the Lion of the North, then that could have been him, riding high in Europe, the enemy of the Habsburgs and a key member of the Triple Alliance that aimed at cementing a new world order. He could have been part of that history. He could have been, but he wasn't. Unlike Gustavus, Christian lost pretty much every battle of consequence to those of superior military capability. This wasn't necessarily his fault, one doesn't doubt that he tried his best to combat what he had perceived as the Habsburg influence menacing his German possessions and his Baltic predominance. He ensured that his country held on despite its almost complete occupation by Wallenstein, as the latter tore up the Jutland Peninsula in his attempt to seek a Danish capitulation and secure the Habsburg's northern frontier. By so enduring, he ensured that the Habsburgs became desperate enough to irk Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, who was given numerous incentives and provocations that he could later point to. The Habsburg miscalculation and overextension even forced the Danes and Swedes, bitter enemies only years before, into a temporary alliance to prevent Habsburg influence spreading to the Baltic. It was a panicked time for these Habsburg enemies as Ferdinand II was at this stage at his most ambitious and victorious. Christian's campaign was an ultimate failure, because though he had used the opportunity to present himself as the champion of Protestantism and Lutheran German princes everywhere, the Holy Roman Empire at this stage hadn't been shocked. It hadn't been beaten to the point where Ferdinand would consider compromise. The Habsburg aura of invincibility was reinforced by Spanish aid in money and materials, 
to the point that once Christian lost his first battle to Tilly in the Battle of Lutter on the 27th of August 1626, he lost the respect, support and hope of Protestant German princes everywhere. One imagines what would have happened had Christian in fact been successful, had he won every battle he encountered and transformed Scandinavia's relationship with the HRE, as Gustavus would do. The situation was indeed different in comparison to when Christian began his campaign in 1625 and when Gustavus began his in 1630. What Christian's war had done was create a situation where the Habsburgs became a victim of their own success, a common theme in the Thirty Years' War. Ferdinand in 1629 created the Edict of Restitution. His gift to Catholicism, his victor's peace, and his religious, philosophical brainchild in every aspect. Spurred on perhaps by Lamarameni, his Jesuit advisor and close confidant, Ferdinand nonetheless transformed not just how his allies saw him, but also how neutrals and potential enemies saw him too. What it also did was enable the beleaguered Dutch to catch a breather and come back in the late 1620s better than ever, entering one of their many beast modes to the immense confusion and distress of the Spanish, who would surely believe them beat at that stage. It also set the HRE in a collision course with Sweden, and to a lesser extent with France. Gustavus Adolphus could not allow his fellow Lutheran brethren to fall under the sway of the edict, any legitimate gripes, some might argue that the Habsburgs had intervened in his Polish business and had simply gotten too big for their boots. For the French, this Swedish conclusion complemented their own. Richelieu leapt at every opportunity to undermine the Habsburgs, and the possibility of creating another mercenary out of another Scandinavian state was too good to pass up. We know the rest. What I'm trying to illustrate is the impact Christian had despite his failures. It's not just because he enabled me to divide my coverage of the Thirty Years' War into handy chunks. When he couldn't get the job done, when Ferdinand II's actions threw new light on the Habsburgs, the whole dynamic of the war changed. It also took a lot out of the HRE to fight and support Wallenstein's army, which was the major cause for his dismissal in mid-1630. After Christian, the Thirty Years' War ceased to be a case of the Habsburgs taking on one controlled or one de facto enemy at a time. After 1630, France was securely in the background, and Richelieu awaited the time when he knew he would have to commit France in military actions as well as military finances. Of course, for Christian in 1643, none of this was of any value, and it is highly unlikely that he dissected the years following his defeat as I just did. In fact, he'd probably rather forget those 13 years that saw him effectively plunge his kingdom into the background and ruin its otherwise reasonable track record. Not to mention the fact that his pre-war claims and status went up in a Habsburg smoke. For Christian, it wasn't so much that he failed to understand his impact on the Thirty Years' War, but it was a fact that the Thirty Years' War had effectively left him behind. Geoffrey Parker, in his book The Thirty Years' War, underlines not only the abruptness of the Danish-Swedish War of 1643-45, sometimes called Torstensen's War for reasons you'll soon discover, but also its root-central causes. Quote, In 1643, Sweden suddenly went to war with Denmark. There were many reasons for this surprising development. Christian IV, his desire for military glory unquenched by either advancing years or previous defeats, had made as much mischief as possible for his northern neighbour. He gave shelter to political enemies of the Stockholm government, 
He blockaded Sweden's ally, the port of Hamburg. He harassed and even arrested Swedish shipping in the Baltic. When news leaked out that Christian was secretly negotiating an alliance with the Emperor, Sweden decided to act first. End quote. An event such as this deserves another angle, so David Milland has been roped in to give his view of events. Milland's coverage of the war causes is interesting because it refocuses light on issues we've brushed over a few times here. Items such as Olivares' plan to coordinate an attack on Swedish allies with the help of the Danes, and Christian's attempts to lure the Swedish government into marrying the young Queen Christina off to a Danish prince, both are of particular note. Quote, Christian had recovered from his humiliation at the hands of Wallenstein and, lured by the offer of Hamburg and Bremen, had taken a few tentative steps towards a possible alliance with the Emperor. Like the Emperor, his prime concern was to weaken the power of Sweden. To this end, he had tried to exploit Banner's difficulties while his troops in their mutiny of 1635. He received with honour Gustavus's widow after the failure of her attempt to marry Christina off to a Danish prince and planned with Olivares in 1639 a joint attack on Alsberg, a Swedish ally. The latest dispute arose over sound Jews. Sweden's exemption from these was not in question, but Denmark refused to exempt ships coming from Baltic ports under Swedish occupation, and no longer ignored the deception by which Dutch ships sailed under a Swedish flag. End quote. That last point is especially interesting the idea that Dutch merchants would pretend to be Swedish so they wouldn't have to pay extra money. But it does reflect the nature of the Swedish-Dutch relationship at the time. Dutch investors had placed many eggs in Swedish baskets, particularly in the extraction of Swedish copper and in the Swedish metallurgy industry. There was also the simple fact that the Dutch didn't like the sound tolls, and believed that as a primary merchant fleet, which served wide-ranging worldwide goods and interests, that they should be exempt from paying too. This resentment, over money though it may certainly have been, will give the Dutch the excuse to intervene on the side of the Swedes later on, and not just because they had made the joint declaration to aid the other against each other's enemies. Sweden was not fighting Spain, not really, but then again the Dutch rarely were faced with a situation where they had to face imperial forces, except for the odd times when Spanish armies were reinforced with the units from the German states. Therefore the relationship was relatively even and despite the French bags of money that flowed into Swedish coffers, Axel Oxenstierna certainly understood the fact that the Dutch were Sweden's most important foreign investor. The Swedish decision to move against Denmark illustrated the confidence it now possessed within itself. In the years before, Sweden had been forced, under the reign of Gustavus Adolphus no less, to cut its losses and sign an unfavourable treaty with the Danes in 1619, rather than face continued war against what they upheld to be a stronger enemy. The fact that, a generation later, preemptive war against Denmark was seen as beneficial should tell you all you need to know about how much the balance of power had switched. Christian knew it. Indeed, the very fact that he was negotiating with the son of his former enemy, with the polity that had ensured his fall from the top of the northern food chain, illustrates not just his desperation, but also how far he'd fallen. It says a lot about Ferdinand III too, that his best hope in 1643 for a successful outcome to the Thirty Years' War lay in the kingdom his father had seen humiliatingly thrashed less than two decades before. 
the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and duplicity in diplomacy was hardly a rare animal in the Thirty Years' War as we have seen, but what strikes me about the Danish war planning, the Swedish discovery and the decision to do something about it, is just how much it demonstrates the extent to which Sweden had passed out its former enemy and Scandinavian rival. Torstensson's attack on the Jutland Peninsula was eerily similar to that launched by Wallenstein in the previous campaigns, and I can't help but feel sorry for the Danish people, who once again were subjected to an invasion of their lands by a foreign power in exactly the same style as before. While a subordinate captured Christian's German dependencies, Torstensson went for the jugular and dashed up the peninsula in support of the Danish army. Taken by surprise, but also likely relishing the opportunity to take on his rival once and for all, Christian to his credit stayed calm and positive during the harrowing early months. But that's about the only good thing you can say about the Danish response. The news that Denmark and Sweden were now officially at war made Ferdinand III jump up from his chair and take notice. This was the perfect opportunity the best chance that the HRE had to attack the Swedes in the rear while they were preoccupied with the Danes. Furthermore, with the Swedes distracted, France would now be on its own on the Rhine frontier, and since the immediate danger the Swedes posed was put on hold, a combined campaign with Spain could knock France out of the war. It was quite a boon for imperial fortunes, and initially, the Swedish Council's decision to launch a preemptive war against Denmark before Denmark could plan accordingly and launch their war of revenge against the Swedes seemed like a hasty decision. On paper, certainly, it looked like it would give the Imperials an advantage, or at the very least even the playing field long enough to enable Ferdinand III to recover. In actual fact, it emboldened Ferdinand to stick to his guns on more domestic issues these domestic issues being the conference within the HRE that had been called in Frankfurt in January 1643. Most of the electors and important princes met there to discuss issues regarding foreign policy peace treaties and how to best continue the war. Top of the list were Ferdinand's rights as emperor to represent the HRE as a whole, rather than grant each individual prince's own right to control his own foreign policy. The ability of princes to negotiate on their own behalf was important because, parallel to the conference in Frankfurt, Sweden and France had organised their own conferences. The locations of the two conferences were chosen as Münster and Osnabrück. Both were cities that the eventual treaties of Westphalia would come to be associated with. Sweden and her allies negotiated with other reps in Osnabrück, while France, Spain and other Catholic states negotiated from Münster. These locations had been set down in the previous Franco-Swedish Treaty of 1641, which had tied the fortunes of France and Sweden together, so that neither could make a separate peace until the war's conclusion. These towns became a demilitarised zone, and hosted a series of diplomats from across Europe. Ferdinand wanted Frankfurt's conference to discuss purely German issues that threatened the peace, but it soon became obvious that it was impossible to discuss German issues without reference to the foreign powers that affected them. Ferdinand's intention, then, was to send imperial reps to Osnabrück and Münster to negotiate on behalf of the whole HRE, with the policy being decided beforehand by the usual method, the unbalanced electoral and prince's college. In other words, Ferdinand's agents would be advocating a policy abroad, claiming to speak for the entirety of the empire and all its princes, 
when in reality, the policies that were put forward by the agents in the two cities were developed, as usual, by the big guns. Essentially the Catholic electors, the princes allied to Ferdinand, and those who had fought or were fighting against these same foreigners. This, claimed the elector Frederick William of Brandenburg, was completely ridiculous because it didn't represent all the interests of the German princes equally. Furthermore, many Protestant German princes, such as Hesse Castle for example, were enemies of the Emperor and thus couldn't even attend the meetings at Frankfurt in the first place. This is echoed by Geoffrey Parker. Quote, it was Ferdinand's intention to keep the Frankfurt Assembly separate from those in Osnabrück and Münster, since he hoped his envoys would be able to conduct talks with the foreign powers in the name of the whole empire. The Catholic rulers seemed agreeable enough to this, but the Protestants were not. Firstly, they were heavily outnumbered in the early days at Frankfurt. Two against four Catholics in the Electoral College, four against ten in the Prince's College. Secondly, several leading Protestants were still technically outlaws and thus could not attend the discussions at Frankfurt. The opposition to Ferdinand's binary peace policy was led by Frederick William of Brandenburg from within the Assembly, and by Hesse Castle from without. Gradually, the Protestant delegations moved their headquarters to Osnabrück, but still the Emperor remained obdurate, refusing to recognise the right of his vassals to vote in the Congress meetings. End quote. Ferdinand refused to recognise any Protestant delegations that went to Osnabrück, and he continued to insist that only the Emperor could speak for the Princes of the Empire. He was able to resist because, for the moment, he could still cling to a position of strength, or at the very least, hope, thanks to the Danish war, that involved Sweden and the fact that France was thus virtually alone in Europe. Cardinal Mazarin in France was in fact quite miffed that Axox had elected to launch his state at Denmark not only because it placed France now in strategic jeopardy, but also, as David Milland explains, quote, Sweden's attack on Denmark was unpopular in Paris. Mazarin objected that French subsidies designed to achieve the defeat of the Emperor were being misappropriated to finance a private vendetta between the two Baltic powers, but he dared not repudiate the alliance, because other events in Germany were causing him anxiety. End quote. The attempts to detach Maximilian of Bavaria from Ferdinand had failed, even after the French decisive victory at Rocroi early in 1643. Mazarin, learning of the Swedish declaration of war against Denmark early in the spring, planned for an invasion of the Rhine that would pour French troops into Bavaria and knock out Ferdinand's biggest fan once and for all, before any of the Habsburgs had a chance to react. However, much like the majority of other French plans, it didn't pan out as the French statesman intended. Enter the Bavarian general Franz von Mercy. Mercy had been present at the Battle of Breitenfeld back in 1631, and he had conducted himself with notable bravery in his defence of Rheinfelden in 1638. In 1638, he was made a Master General of Ordnance in the Army of Bavaria. By that time, Bavarian troops were tasked with defending the Rhine frontier against the French, teaming up with the Spanish where possible, and reinforcing the central imperial armies sent towards the Swedes if they were available. Mercy gave a good showing on all of these occasions, and soon had built up enough of a rep for himself that he was made de facto commander of Bavarian troops along the Rhine. In late 1643, Max of Bavaria did place him in charge of defending Bavarian soil from the French army under the command of Marshal Ranzo 
which was expected to make an attack in an aggressive campaign to protect its own frontier from a possible multi-pronged Habsburg invasion. In the resulting Battle of Tuttlingen on the 24th of November 1643 though, Mercy decisively defeated Rantzau's forces after luring them across the Rhine. The French defeat coming in the same year as their victory at Rocroi seemed to put Mazarin on edge. He pulled the able commander, Henri, the Viscount of Turenne, out of Italy and placed him in command of the pitiful remnants of what had once been Bernard of Weimar's army, and before that Gustavus's. Certainly it was a bitter defeat for France, since the bulk of its German forces were lost at Tuttlingen, not to mention the entirety of the army's baggage and equipment. Turenne, arriving in December 1643, made the necessary decision to cut French losses and retreat back across the Rhine in tough wintry weather, in the hope that the resulting respite gained by the retreat would enable French forces along the Rhine, or what was left of them, to fight another day. Mazarin, concerned that France's Rhine frontier, and thus Alsace-Lorraine, may be in danger as it had been in 1636, sent urgent requests to Axe Ox to conclude the Danish war and support their French ally. Axe Ox ignored him, since as far as he was concerned the Danish threat jeopardised the entire war effort of the Triple Alliance. The Danes had to be defeated. Mazarin would just have to hope that Sweden could defeat them before another Tuttlingen occurred. In the event, Mazarin need not have worried too much. The lightning campaign conducted by Torstensen was throwing Denmark completely off balance. By January 1644, Torstensen was poised to seize the entire Jutland Peninsula, Wallenstein style. His subordinate, Gustav Horn, who frequented previous episodes, had taken the valuable Danish province of Halland, not Holland, this was in Danish-occupied Sweden, and it gave Sweden essentially a door to the Baltic on what was originally a Danish territory. A map on the blog will clear up what changed hands and why, with Sweden capturing here much of what it would later hold on to in the resulting peace treaty. This war, in case you hadn't realised, was really the changing of the Baltic Guard where the balance of power was concerned. Danish naval forces were defeated in the Battle of Femern on October 1644, which thanks, with thanks to Dutch naval reinforcements and advice, courtesy of the Dutch entrepreneur Louis de Geer, who happened to have a small fortune invested in Swedish metallurgical industry. It didn't all go according to plan for Sweden, though. Gustav Horn's capture of Halland had been meant to facilitate an invasion of the Danish islands across the Sound, but the patch of water between Horn and the islands he had planned to invade failed to freeze, so he pretty much just sat in Halland and waited. This left Torstensen alone, while Torstensen was also informed of Ferdinand III's response to the Danish war. Not only had Ferdinand pledged an optimistic alliance to Christian IV, but he had also sent an imperial army north towards the Jutland Peninsula in late 1643. It was 20,000 men strong, and it was under the command of the veteran general and one of Wallenstein's lieutenants, the previously encountered Gallus. The Swedish war against Denmark had given Ferdinand a newfound source of strength and hope for the imperial cause. It led him to uphold his position as the sole voice of the HRE, as well as seriously slow the negotiations his reps made with either Sweden in Osnabrück or France in Münster. Originally, Denmark had been mediating in Osnabrück between Swedish delegates and their enemies and allies, 
But of course, Danish reps couldn't very well mediate anymore once Sweden declared war. So the Danish reps left Osnabrück. And Ferdinand could thus argue that because Danish reps weren't present, and that the Danes were in the war, all parties were not fairly represented, so no peace could be signed. It was a strange argument, but Ferdinand pursued it because he believed that a Danish alliance and Danish help could turn the tables against the Triple Alliance. France was in a very weak military position in early 1644. Having just lost the Battle of Tuttlingen, Amethmatsuren panicked to protect the Rhine while also being stretched into the Netherlands, Catalonia and North Italy. There appeared to be no room for the French to manoeuvre. The negotiations weren't going anywhere though, even without Ferdinand's attempts to use technicalities. 1644 was a year of little diplomatic consequence in either Munster or Osnabrück, as Derek Croxton notes. Quote, it was fortunate for France that no substantive issues were actually discussed at the conference in 1644. The issues addressed were only the preliminary ones, such as questions of precedence among the various ambassadors, whether the powers delegated to a state's ambassadors were adequate to negotiate peace, and whether the German estates should be present at the negotiations. Not until the end of the year were these even resolved in principle, and the question of the admission of the German estates continued to be debated throughout most of 1645. End quote. Therefore, though the cities of Osnabrück and Münster would eventually host the war-ending peace treaties, for now it's more accurate to think of the goings-on there as something of a practice round for what would become known as the Treaty of Westphalia. Little could be negotiated while states still sorted out their diplomatic reps, finalised their correspondence issues, and while the region's postal service by necessity was improved. In reality though, the fact that the peace negotiations produced little of value in 1643-45 was in some ways intentional, since in those three years at least two powers at one time wished the war to continue so they could have more leverage and that better deals in the eventual peace could be obtained. This was especially true for Ferdinand III in the beginning of 1644, since he hoped the Danes could destabilise or distract the Swedes and place the harmony of the Triple Alliance in jeopardy across Europe enabling him to get a better deal when he eventually did extricate his empire from the war. As troubled as Mazarin and Axox no doubt were by the Danish war, both had planned for the approaching army that Ferdinand III sent towards the Jutland Peninsula. And they did this by approaching another former player in the Thirty Years' War, the Ottoman Protectorate of Transylvania. George Wakachi of Transylvania was the son of Bethlen Gabor, that atomic thorn in the side of the Habsburgs during the early years of the Thirty Years' War. George had been relatively quiet up to this point. Having come to the throne in 1630, he'd had a long time to plan his next move and conduct the mission he'd inherited from his father, that of peeling off Hungarian concessions and hopefully territory at the Habsburgs' expense. In February 1644, he made his move, welcoming the Franco-Swedish reps who would come in December 1643 to entice him into attacking Ferdinand while Gallus left the Habsburg heartland defenceless. It was a serious coup for the Franco-Swedish alliance, and one which Ferdinand seems to have never seen coming. 
Gallus was far away from home, unsuccessfully in pursuit of Torstenson on the Jutland Peninsula, when he got a panicked message from Ferdinand telling him the Transylvanian invasion. George had seized all of Upper Hungary, the part directly administered by the Habsburgs, and was now moving directly towards Vienna. Gallus turned back south at once, but was pursued by Torstenson, and then decisively defeated in a series of small skirmishes that virtually sapped the morale and energy of Gallus's knackered army, which had been marching full tilt for days on end in pursuit of Torstenson. The slow melting away of Gallus's forces was made yet worse by the fact they had to withdraw through territory already ravaged by decades of warfare, and many thousands died of starvation with the result that less than 2,000 out of the original 20,000 reached the comparative safety of Bohemia. It was a terrible blow for the Habsburgs. Not only had their plans to aid Denmark and knock Sweden down a peg gone up in smoke, but their sole means of protecting their homeland was now absent with a bitter historical enemy on their doorstep. The war had steadily turned against the Danes as well with the loss at the Battle of Femern in October 1644, and his home islands under threat from invasion, Christian IV essentially threw in the towel in November that year, and organised a truce pertaining actual peace negotiations for the following spring. Ferdinand might have had a breakdown, had the Transylvanian threat by then passed, thanks to an unlikely intervention by the Ottomans. The Ottoman Sultan obviously hadn't been paying much attention to the desperate state of Habsburg affairs, but what he did know was that George was moving his forces too far into Habsburg territory, and that these same troops were going to be necessary for a planned Persian campaign the following year. After laying siege to the town of Brno in Moravia for five months, George was a bit sick of campaigning anyway, and managed to get the Treaty of Linz negotiated for the 15th of December 1644 in which Ferdinand hastily purchased peace with Transylvania by promising to allow freedom of religious practice for Protestants in royal Hungary. Transylvania thus faded back into obscurity after its cameo role in 1644, but the whole episode had made the world of difference to Ferdinand's psyche. France had held on too, with the strategic victory at Freiburg over the 3rd to the 12th of August 1644. During that time, the strategically important city of Freiburg was held by Bavarian forces, and Turenne, the new commander, proved his mettle by defeating Mercy's forces that had come out of the city after suffering a short siege to combat the French. Though a victory, Turenne's force had suffered heavy casualties and couldn't actually take the city, leading Mazarin to lament, Max of Bavaria to gloat, and historians to comment that French military consistency during the Thirty Years' War was about as rare as a balanced Spanish budget. Sweden was encouraged not to be too mean to Denmark during the peace negotiations set out in the summer of 1645. Dutch concerns revolved around Sweden gaining too much supremacy in the Baltic, while France merely wanted its ally to stop spending money in that theatre and refocus its attention in Central Europe, where the Habsburgs were able to focus almost solely on France. The treaty that ended the Danish war also ended Christian IV's kingdom's status as a great power, a status that had been put up for debate beforehand due to its failures against the Habsburgs in the late 1620s. Sweden was now undisputably the prime power in the Baltic. The Treaty of Bromsbro on the 23rd of August 1645 was pro-Swedish 
in that it enabled Swedish exemption from the sound tolls, it granted Swedish leases on important Danish territories, it tore a chunk out of the middle of Norway and gave it to Sweden, it transferred some pretty Baltic islands to Swedish control, and it also robbed Denmark's king of his beloved German cities. Ferdinand could now see the writing on the wall. The Swedish peace with Denmark, though it was brokered in part by the Swedish Queen Christina, now of age, who was a strong advocate for peace and the Swedish retreat from the HRE, freed up Torstensson to go on a tear in the empire proper. The campaigns of 1645 that Torstensson would engage in, coupled with the simultaneous French successes in the Rhine, will be covered next time. They would lead directly towards Ferdinand's acquiescence to his prince's demands. On the 29th of August 1645, the Frankfurt Assembly, where the Holy Roman Empire's princes and electors were to formulate a single imperial policy in voice, closed. Henceforth, all princes would represent themselves, and the eventual peace would be negotiated solely in the cities of Münster and Osnabrück to finally form the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. As you can see, we somehow are nearing the end of our Mammoth 30 Years War special. But these two episodes, I hope, provided you with a good stopgap as the Habsburgs spit out their last gasping breaths of the war. Please join me next time, as we cover the final months of solid campaigning, the real war-ending battles, and the peace treaties that are still upheld today as a critical example of Europe's growth after 30 years of horrendous war. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.85. Thanks! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 